0: Hello and welcome to the D.C. Insider Employer Update podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington D.C. based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now, let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney.
1: Hi, everyone. This is David Fortney, and welcome to another edition of the DC Insider What Employers Need to Know podcast. It's really great to be back with you, and we've got the whole gang together again. Nita and Bert are both here. Nita, how are you today?
2: I'm doing great in Sweltering St. Louis.
1: Oh yeah, I know. Bert, how about you? Doing fine and a little less
3: sweltering, but still warm DC. Glad to be back.
1: Yeah. So we've been off for a couple of weeks. We've experienced a lot of business meetings with agencies and other developments. We've had our run of COVID through our team, so we've experienced that. But we're all back and we're very thankful for that. And there's a lot that's starting to happen now with the agencies, and we want to focus a little bit because I think nothing better to bring us back than what is going on with the federal agencies in Washington. And what we really want to do is recap, because the last couple of months have been fairly eventful for the National Labor Relations Board, OFCCP, EEOC, and some of the other agencies, and their developments that are certainly worth talking about and that we want to highlight. Well, one of the things that I think is really surprising is what's going on with nominees. First of all, I find it surprising we're even talking about nominees, what, 18 months into the Biden administration. These aren't replacement nominees. These are still the first round of nominees on some of the agencies that we really care about. And one of the agencies most critical to this administration, and certainly to the business community, is the wage and hour division at the U.S. Department of Labor, Force the Fair Labor Standards Act. Bert, what is going on with those nominations?
3: Well... David, it's surprising because we started with a veteran administration. Everybody in the Biden team is a vet. Some of them have served in these positions, and it's kind of surprising that their congressional affairs is in such shambles, especially with a president who's been in Congress and the Senate for 40 years. But let's go back to April at the Wage and Hour Division with the failure to confirm David Weil. Apparently, the administration were the only people in Washington that thought that was going to succeed. And the surprising thing is they don't appear to have a plan B. There's still no nominee, and we'll get to what that means in a minute for the regulatory agenda. But just for confirmations, it's kind of surprising that they didn't have a backup plan. The same thing appears to have happened with Lisa Gomez, who just this week or last week was failed to be confirmed in the position at the Pension Office, the ESVA, Employment Security Benefits Administration. There hasn't been a head there since May 2020. They lost by one vote, and then Schuler had to change his vote so he could bring her back. But the surprising thing is, you know, the one thing a majority leader is supposed to be able to do is count, and they miss their count. I have a feeling they're going to bring her back and she's going to succeed, but There's a subtext here that everybody should be aware of. The Gomez nomination got mixed up with some very important new factors, use of cryptocurrency, ESG, and climate change as factors in acceptable pension assets. That's what the ESBA does. It regulates our federal pension laws. And these factors showed their ugly head, as it were, for the first time and worked to undermine this nomination. So even though I think she'll be nominated when Vice President Harris is back in the chamber, it's kind of dismaying that they still don't have their act together 18 months in.
1: It was surprising to me. You know, the EEOC, after a rather surprising delay, the president has finally announced a nominee because, as everyone knows, we only have currently five commissioners, three Republican, two Democrats. And the chair of the EOC is anxiously awaiting to get her three Democratic majority when Commissioner Dillon, Janet Dillon, former chair, her term ends in July. So without much lead time, the president has finally come forward with Kalpana Kotago to be the new commissioner. Now, I think everyone in town agrees that she is eminently qualified, but the real concern from the business community is, oh my gosh, now we are going to have three Democratic commissioners, and that Chair Burroughs will, in fact, have a majority and be able to vote on some of those really controversial pending matters in which they've not taken action. The harassment regulations, perhaps moving forward with those. The collection of pay data. We've been talking a lot about the National Academy of Sciences review and the collection of pay data, which we expect not to mention enforcement actions. Been sort of gridlocked because Chair Burroughs with only two Democrats, has not called for a vote on much of anything for obvious reasons. So having the third Democrat confirmed is something that the business community has really galvanized around with the thought, maybe we can delay, maybe we can postpone, because there is increasingly the shadow of the midterm election. Nita, I know that's something that you have really looked at a bit, and I wonder if you could expand on that.
2: Well, I think it's really important. If you go back to the Gomez nomination, not being successful, it turns out that it was Lisa Murkowski, who's in a very tight race in Alaska, where oil and gas is a very big issue. And so she, for whatever reason, decided she needed to change her vote. She voted for Lisa in the help committee and then voted against her on the floor. Interestingly, what do you all think about this issue where, again, Kapana has got was an 11-11 tie? which did not bode well, by the way, for a while, and for the very reasons that everything is focused on whether the Republicans are going to be able to regain the House and Senate in right. November.
1: So the EOC nominee will now require two votes, since she came out of a committee by a tie, and this is exactly what resulted in David Weil cratering. So over the shadow of the midterm election, I just want to be sure we capture this point we're roughly four months out before we have those results. Increasingly, the Republicans are saying, you know what, it's likely we are going to be in control of one or both chambers of Congress. Why should we be giving confirmation to the president's nominees? Why should we be going forward and allowing EEOC to have a three Democratic majority? We don't have to accept that at this point. We should hold on and see what the election results yield and whether we have that authority." You know, David, that's
3: fascinating. But I think for Gomez, the votes are all in. They're now 50-50 and they're just waiting for the vice president. So I think within the next several weeks, uh, Gomez is not as controversial as Wilde. There are no Democrats that are in opposition. So I think she's going to squeak through. But you're quite right. She may be the last.
1: Maybe one of the last. That's right. Well, let's switch from what's going on On the Hill, with respect to the agencies, let's unpack the agencies themselves, because honestly, some of them haven't been active, but some of them continue to be, unfortunately, extremely active. And Bert, why don't we start (laughs) on that point, the extremely active?
3: Yeah. Back to the NLRB. Most of us on this call started our careers as labor lawyers and did a lot of labor management relations, union elections, unfair labor practices, and that kind of disappeared for many decades and now we're back in it with a very new and aggressive NLRB. Everybody is quite aware of the Starbucks and Amazon proceedings, but I think the real story behind all this is the NLRB's continuing efforts to remake US labor law. There's a recent Starbucks case that's gonna present the NLRB with its first opportunity to broadly expand the penalties that they can impose on unfair labor practices. It used to just include back pay and reinstatement, what they call the make whole remedy. The general counsel wants to turn it into a tort. They want consequential damages. They want monetary penalties. They want bargaining orders, that is to say, to ignore the vote and require recognition. They want to try to have recognition simply on authorization cards. They want to get rid of captive audience speeches. They want to expand access to employers' property during a union campaign. The board may well succeed since they have a majority and they seem to have the kind of urgent leadership. Frankly, it's a two-edged sword. All of these ambitious initiatives are going to be challenged in the courts. What the ultimate outcome of some of this will be is that instead of nibbling at the margins and getting some advances, They are going straight at the throat of the law, and the courts probably aren't going to buy, including even the Supreme Court on some of these issues. So right now, we have a very aggressive, very ambitious NLRB making new law, quote-unquote, at the administrative level. But we've seen the courts in recent months be reluctant to approve these ambitious reinterpretations of regulations, and I think it may come a cropper. Maybe not tomorrow, but in a year or two. Anita?
2: Well, what's interesting about this is that, I don't know if you all have any, is how these union organizing drives have changed. We now have an unfair labor practice charge filed against the CEO of Starbucks for his interview with the New York Times. But I'd like to change the subject just for a minute to an agency that we expected to be busy and really hasn't been, our friends at OFCCP. David and I had an opportunity to hear from Jenny Yang just a few weeks ago. Basically, all they've really done is they've got a new CSAL list, David, which didn't look all that different from the old CSAL list, maybe a little bit. But the big thing is the big push is on certifying federal contractors certifying their compliance in the contractor portal by the end of June. And I'm not sure there's as much urgency around that as we expected. What do you think, David?
1: I've been surprised that there has not been more urgency. The certification is very robust. It's for the entire set of obligations, and it's subject to the penalties of perjury. It just feels like OFCCP is a little bit underwater on some of these issues. This can have very long-term impact, that is, this mandatory certification and how it's used. But in the short run, OFCCP, I just don't think, is quite the 800-pound player that we thought they would be, which is surprising.
3: Can I just add something from left field? I'm not convinced that that website for certification is going to survive the crash at the end of the month. And I think we have to take a deep breath to figure out what the agency is going to do when the site crashes. Well,
2: it's happened think- in the past
3: at EEOC, and uh, it may happen again.
2: And I think the truth will be, you know, just like EEOC last year, when they put in a new process for the EEO-1, they extended the deadline quite a bit. We have not seen that yet, but we'll see that. Speaking of EEOC, David, what's going on over there?
1: You know, President Biden, I mean, recall, he fired several general counsel, both at the Labor Board on day one, when he was right after being sworn in. And in short order, March of his first year, he fired the EEOC general counsel, Sharon Gustafsson. But ironically, it's been 15 months. Finally, the White House has come forward with a replacement. He fired the general counsel, no nominee, no one named formally to act in that role. The authority was delegated and ultimately assumed by the chair. The chair of the EOC has also been performing the general counsel function. Not the best situation. The president has now nominated Carla Gilbride. Carla, who I know, she's an excellent lawyer, very smart very capable, very aggressive, I might add, as you might expect, for someone from this administration, very focused on challenging arbitration agreements. She has a very strong and successful track record in challenging arbitration agreements and pursuing employers in her private practice. What will happen with her nomination is just starting to see the delegation of authority to the general counsel and historically... For many years, the general counsel had delegated all the litigation authority largely to the regional attorneys, senior career lawyers. And during the Trump administration, those delegations were rescinded, and the general counsel, who is confirmed by the U.S. Senate, could then be held directly accountable for when major litigations were filed. So could the commissioners. That is one of the overarching greatest concerns, and it ties back to the nominee, whether there'll be a three Democratic majority, and it will tie to this general counsel nomination on who is going to decide for the EEOC. Is it going to be the career staff or the politically appointed Senate accountable nominees?
2: One other thing, you mentioned it earlier, David, we're waiting for the NAS report because we know that Chair Burroughs is very interested in reviving what we call Component 2, collecting pay data. That is now like six months overdue.
1: Correct. Well, one final thing that did create a bit of a splash, EEOC has now formally issued some updated guidance on artificial intelligence. And the guidance lows under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and it properly addresses a variety of ADA considerations for the application of AI. I would have to say very workmanlike guidance didn't necessarily break new ground, not necessarily surprising, certainly helped increase public awareness of AI and some of the potential pitfalls that are there. This, though, reflects the commission overall is concerned. Commissioner Sonderling, who we've previously interviewed on our podcast, he has been individually, as a commissioner, championing and advancing AI concerns and compliance with Title VII. But the commission, as a formal institution, has not done that Chair Burroughs, again, because of that voting limitation, has now at least adopted something so that the commission puts a stake in the ground. AI is going to be a very big deal going forward. And she at least has created, I think, a pretty successful with a public dialogue on that. Let's go back to the Labor Department, Bert, and one of the other agencies that continues, even though we don't have wild there, wage hour continues to be pretty active. Well, they say
3: they're chugging along, but putting a good face on it. Yes, they are continuing work on a proposed substantial revision of the Davis-Bacon rules and the prevailing wage rules. They say they're working on the Fair Labor Standards Act minimum overtime rule and minimum wage. And they also claim that the independent contractor rule is in process. In fact, this month, they've announced two public listening sessions on independent contractor Let's pause for a moment and think about just those three or four things. They probably affect every workplace in America. Minimum wage, overtime, who's an independent contractor, who's an employee? If you're working on a federal project, what do you pay and to whom? Do you have a project labor agreement? These are massive questions that affect the running of America's economy, and we are doing it in an administration that has an acting wage and hour administrator and no nominee in sight. There's some problems there. Something called the Federal Vacancies Reform Act that probably nobody has ever read or heard about. But the impact of it is someone can only be an acting administrator for something like 210 days. And Ms. Luman, who's doing a fine job, is running out of days. The problem is if they name her to be the permanent wage and hour administrator, she has to step down in this vacancies act. If you've served 210 days, you are forced to step down so that you can no longer be in that acting role. And if the administration at that point wants to name her as the permanent nominee, she'll also have to step down because you can't be a nominee and acting at the same time. Nita, you had a point?
2: I wanted to go back to your point about all the things that Wage and Hour are doing. I just saw and have not really just this morning commenting on Secretary Mahdi, our favorite secretary, being in front of Congress and under enormous attack for him trying to deal with worker misclassification through the regulatory process. So I think to your all's point about them. The Congress is, especially the Republicans, are starting to feel their oats because they think they're going to take the House and Senate, and they are starting to push back against Biden.
1: That's right. Oddly
3: enough, there's still another element to the appellate court for the Federal Circuit. One of the first rulings on this Vacancy Act seems to indicate that a lower-ranking person can continue to serve without limitation. So it's possible that Ms. Luman can be a permanent deputy and still run the wage and hour administration, but she will have to get back to the accountability point. She has no accountability to Congress, and Congress has no oversight for her. I think the wage and hour division is in something of disarray.
1: David? Well, another example, I think, of perhaps Washington not working the way it was designed, one of many. I want to really highlight one thing that really Absolutely captured me, which was an announcement that the U.S. Department of Justice Criminal Division is reviewing and investigating Wells Fargo. Now, okay, was it an antitrust violation? Was it some criminal misconduct? No, it deals with how their hiring process and the question of whether they falsely interviewed persons of color on interview slates. This is effectively what the Miami coaches claim is that the Rooney rule was misapplied. That is, that the selection had already been made. They went through the motions of interviewing people to fill their diversity obligations, their goals, but they weren't real interviews. They were just fake interviews because a selection had already been made. The claim isn't new. What is new, and I think just eye popping, is that the Justice Department Criminal Division is investigating whether that constitutes Criminal misconduct. Now, this is the second example within six months of this administration addressing potential workplace issues through the Justice Department criminal sanctions. The first involved a memorandum of understanding that we previously discussed the question of whether workers were misclassified as independent contractors instead of W 2 employees, and whether that could constitute a violation of antitrust laws and raise issues of both civil and criminal liability under the antitrust laws. These are two clear examples of a very, I'll call it robust reimagining of the criminal laws and bringing them to bear in enforcing the workplace obligations. I think that could end up being one of the interesting legacies if either or both of those, we don't have any cases yet to enforce. We're going to keep an eye on Wells Fargo, but those are both very unique and unprecedented developments that we've seen just
3: to put a footnote to that there is nothing that gets corporate executives attention more than the prospect of hard time watch this space
1: right right well nita speaking of getting corporate attention i think we're finding that there's some growing corporate attention under the u.s mexico canadian agreement the new free trade agreements what's going on there
2: Well, David, you and I have had an opportunity to jump into something that most of us didn't know very much about. Under the Biden administration, which we've talked about is the most labor-friendly administration since probably FDR, to be perfectly honest, there have been four complaints filed by the UAW basically against certain Mexican companies saying that they are not allowing fair and free elections under this new NAFTA, basically. It's a new NAFTA. What's interesting about it is each case that we have, the election has involved overriding the longstanding Mexican unions that are tied in with the government and so forth and so on, and replacing them with independent unions who must have strong ties to the UAW in the United States. It's been a very interesting kind of eye-opening process for us, David, wouldn't you say? I sure would, Nita.
1: And this is the merger of the labor law compliance with effectively U.S. labor standards in Mexico, and the sanctions on the company in addition to labor penalties, it implicates the company's ability in Mexico to export products to the United States. And most of these companies we're talking about are in the automotive industry. They're part of the automotive supply chain. I think pretty widely understood that many, many components used in automobiles that are assembled in the U.S. are manufactured in Mexico and Canada to some degree, but primarily Mexico. And so the implications, it creates a lot of leverage. And I want to underscore Nita's point, the UAW's complaint, which initially are investigated by the U.S. Department of Labor through the Labor Attaché and the U.S. Trade Representative, the USTR office, there have been four examples so far, and they have received extremely, shall we say, friendly responses by the Walsh Labor Department that has gone out of its way to implement the mechanisms and kind of put the wood to these companies. So that's an area that is unpacking very quickly and very, very
2: interesting. And David, just to make a point that you just made, you get a company's attention, not just that company, but the parent and everybody else, if they can't import into the United States, these products that they are building in Mexico.
1: Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Our time has run, been a lot going on in the agencies. Let's go around the horn. I want some final closing thought. What are the takeaways from this whole situation? Bert?
3: I think I'll go back to where I started. I think the confirmation process will continue to be hobbled, and I think it will be growing harder and harder for the administration to fill its appointments. Nita.
2: Well, David, I think the thing is, I'm still surprised at how little the agencies really are doing. They talk about what they're doing, but they're not really moving forward as we expected.
1: Final observation I would make, and I'm going to put a soft pitch out for one of our upcoming podcasts. The Supreme Court is going to be deciding a series of cases this term. They've saved all the tough ones for last. And a series of the cases are going to address how far agencies can go in promulgating regulations and. Sub, you know, administrative guidance and enforcement activity. All those activities that Bert described at the NLRB and a lot at the wage hour, and frankly, some that OFCCP is doing are all potentially challengeable as overreaches under what appears to be a rapidly evolving doctrine that the courts are working on to really rescind or cut back the Chevron deference agencies and to allow much greater judicial supervision. If those cases come down the way we think, much of what the Biden agencies are doing will be shredded in the courts. So I think that these points connecting all of these dots, really, really important. All right. Well, gosh, I'm really glad we're back, guys. What a great discussion. So I want to thank you both and thank all of our listeners. Thank you. Please subscribe to the podcast and we'll be in touch. And I just want to give a shout out. The podcast after this one, we're going to focus on pay enforcement and some of those results. And we're going to have Nita lead that discussion with one of our special guests, Savannah Shuntich, to give the latest update on some of those pay developments. So I'm really looking forward to that, too. Thanks, everyone. Nita, Burt, thank you, guys.
0: Thanks a lot. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting fortneyscott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.